Amen. Well, good morning to you. Almost feels like I'm preaching to the camera only, uh, like we did in 2020. But we are glad, and I am especially glad that you're here this morning, uh, whether you're here in person or whether you're joining us online. Um, we are continuing in the book of Daniel. So if you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Daniel. I would be amiss not to uh, confess to you that I am glad that this morning's text, Daniel chapter 9, uh, gives us a little bit of a break from the, um, uh, the prophetic, uh, prophetic passages we've been in in the past uh, month or so. And so this morning we're going to um, kind of zoom in on Daniel as he prays for his people uh, in a very, very prophetic way. And uh, we'll get back into the good um, prophetic stuff next week. And so looking forward to that. But this morning, we're here in Daniel chapter 9. We've finished uh, the past couple weeks, uh, the first two visions of Daniel. Uh, in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel uh, chapter 8. And this morning, we turn uh, to a kind of a different, uh, different time in, uh, in the story of Daniel. As we'll see here uh, quite, a bit di- quite a bit different than uh, the things that have been going on. So, if you will, uh, we're going to do a little bit different this morning. We almost always just read the whole passage and then kind of back up and, uh, and take it in sections. But it is a lengthy uh, section of Scripture this morning. We're going to be in verses 1 through verse 19. And so we're going to, instead of reading all of that, we're going to read it as we go. Is that good? Good, because that's what we're doing. So, let's start in Daniel chapter 1, and we'll read it in different sections. Uh, we'll read uh, verses 1 through 2, uh, and then... Uh, then we'll read a big part, and then we'll come back in verse 16. So we'll, we'll just do it a little bit differently. So let's read these first few verses, this introduction of Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 1. It says, In the first year of Darius, or Darius, the son of, uh, oh, Adam, Adam, help me this morning, uh, Aharashus. How about Xerxes? Because it's also known as Xerxes. I can say that one better, and it's been since the book of Esther that we have worked through his name. Uh, of, of Xerxes by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign. I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So let's read verse 3 because it's kind of the central verse of this passage. Then he says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and the pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this text that we come to, Lord. We thank you for our time in the book of Daniel. And so, Lord, as we come to Daniel chapter 9 and these first 19 verses, would you lead us and guide us this morning with your Holy Spirit? Uh, Thank you, Lord, for your truth. And I thank you for. Uh, what we see in Daniel, and ultimately how we see Christ in this. And so help us this morning to, um, to be reminded and encouraged by your truth. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. So, a little context as we start Daniel chapter 9 this morning. Uh, we are in a different king. And so if you were, if you were with us the first, uh, the first half of Daniel, we kind of went through these different kings, uh, starting with Nebuchadnezzar, uh, to Belshazzar, to, to Darius. And so the same thing here. So now we're on... Uh, we're on King Darius. I say Darius, some say Darius, and uh, we're just going to roll with that. 
So in the first year of Darius, and so now we've moved on. Uh, Belshazzar was the king uh, during the first, uh, the first two visions. You see there in chapter 7, verse 1, the first year of Belshazzar. And then in uh, chapter 8, in the third year of Belshazzar. And so now we're in the first year of Darius. And if you remember, this was a major uh, shift in the story of Babylon. This is whenever Babylon was conquered, if you will. This is whenever God sent uh, Darius and he sent the Medes and the Persians. We walked through this in the past several weeks. Uh, this is the moment where uh, the captivity was ending. They had been captives in Babylon for, for a, right at 70 years. And now he sent Darius, and that is who God is going to use uh, to send them back to Jerusalem to rebuild. And so we walked through a good bit of that. And so now this is when things are changing. And so uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's gone, Belshazzar's gone, and Darius is in power. So in the first year, this is whenever he, uh, he comes. Some would say that Darius is possibly the same as Cyrus. Some would say possibly it is his nephew. Um, it really, for the sake of our text this morning, you know, we, we can't know for sure. We don't have crystal clarity on this, uh, but we know that it was Darius. We know that he led. And what's interesting to me, and I love this language, uh, it says in the first, it says uh, in verse one, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Now, some would say that if he was not the same as Cyrus, that he would have been a co-regent. And we've talked about co-regents a little bit, that he would not have been king over the whole realm, but that he would have been specifically assigned to Babylon and this realm of the Chaldeans. And if he was, uh, if he was the king over everything, if he was synonymous with Cyrus, then even more does it make... Um, do we look at God's, we see God's sovereignty on display when it says he was made king over the realm. But regardless of whether he was co-regent over just this area or whether he was king over the whole known world at this time, we know who established Darius. We know who established his kingship and that was God himself. And that is a theme we see all through Daniel that in God's sovereignty, he establishes kings and he establishes kingdoms. There has never been a kingdom of man apart from the will of God. Apart from the direct decree of God, God has established every king and every kingdom in past, present, and future. And this is a great truth that we are constantly reminded of. And not just the book of Daniel, but in the book of the Bible. All of Scripture, we see the sovereignty of God on display. And so that's what's, what's important in the setting here, uh, not only the time frame of where, where, where and when it's happening, but pointing to the sovereignty of God in the midst of all these things that are happening, uh, not just where Daniel is currently, but we're going to see what has brought Daniel and the people of Israel to this place. So this morning, our passage points us to the prayer life of Daniel, uh, as we see there in verse 3. And there are at least five things that we need to recognize and understand uh, in the prayers of this prophet. Uh, so, yes, there are five points this morning. Normally you get three points in a poem. This morning you get five points and no poem. So, uh, this is where we are, where, um, where we see this prayer life of Daniel. And the first thing is this. I was going to give you the five points. I'll do that. Prayer is informed and enhanced by the Word. As we look at these, uh, at the prayer of Daniel... First thing we see is that prayer is informed and enhanced by the word. We see that prayer begins with adoring God for who he is. Prayer begins uh, with adoring God for who he is. Thirdly, prayer must include genuine confession. The majority of our text this morning is we're going to see the confession of Daniel. 
Prayer must include genuine confession. Fourth thing, prayer contains thanksgiving for what God has done. Not only do you adore God for who He is, not only do you confess what we've done, but we thank the Lord for what He's done. And finally, we'll see there at the end that prayer is where faith, wherein faith and trust we bring our supplications to the Lord. And so, back to the beginning. There in the first year of his reign, there in verse 2, it says, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Now this is interesting to me. We don't often see it. It happens a few other times in Scripture. But you don't often see such a direct reference in the Word of God to the written Word of God. But this is about as clear as you can get. Daniel the prophet, he is saying that he perceived something. And he didn't receive it in a vision. He received it in books, in writings. I, Daniel, perceived in the books. He got a truth of God. The Word of the Lord came to the man of the Lord through the written Word. Now, obviously, Daniel did not have a copy of our Bible today. He didn't have these 66 books that we know as the Bible today. Uh, He had the majority of the Old Testament. Uh, We know this to be true, that it was not just the books of the law that he had, but he was specifically referring to Jeremiah. You cannot argue that he is talking about the works of Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah is not some old prophet from 100 years ago that, uh, that his writings have already been established. Daniel and Jeremiah were alive at the same time. Daniel was likely a very young boy in the height of Jeremiah's ministry as the exile was about to take place. And so as soon as that, as soon as it's been about 30 years, the writings of, of Jeremiah are already in circulation. God's people are reading them, holding them to be true, holding them to be what we hold the words of Jeremiah to be today, and that is the very word of God. And so we see that prayer is informed and enhanced, we're going to see, by the word of God. Just because they didn't have the whole testament, the whole, the whole of canon, they had the Word of God. And they knew it to be the Word of God. And they saw it to be inspired, the inspired Word of God. So he perceived in these books, it said, the number of years. What truth is it that he saw in these books, in this book of Jeremiah, in the writings of Jeremiah? The number of years, according to the word, to the, to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So so I've read the Bible, he said, guys. I've read God's Word, and I've found in it, I know what is to be true, and that is there's a period of time that these desolations must occur, and there is an end of it. And so what passages is he talking about? Let's go with me, if you will. There's two passages in Jeremiah we want to look at. Just a few books over to your left. Let's start in Jeremiah chapter 25. Now, we have a good bit of Scripture this morning. And so I'm going uh, to, as we often do, read fast. So Jeremiah chapter 25, key verse there is verse 10 and 11. We're going to start in verse 8. So Jeremiah 25, 8 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, remember him, the king of Babylon, 
my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction, and I will make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the, grind, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon. There it is for 70 years. And so God is clearly making this plan known to Jeremiah. And then after these 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. And so, Daniel was pointing back to Jeremiah uh, 25 here. Obviously, he didn't have the chapters and the verses like we have uh, for us this morning. But he also pointed to this passage in Jeremiah chapter 29. One of these verses we're very familiar with. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 29. I'm going to read kind of fast for highlighting here verses, uh, verse 10. I want us to see this context. And this, hopefully, as you read Jeremiah, even the whole book of Jeremiah, especially uh, chapter 25 and 29 here, you hear it differently as we've gone through Daniel to understand what's happening in the context of Daniel. But in Jeremiah 29, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and to the prophets and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So hopefully that has more weight and meaning. We have more understanding of that now. This was after King uh, uh, Jeconiah, sorry, I can't, even, I can't think this morning. And the queen mother and the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and the Jerusalem and craftsmen and the metal workers departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gomorrah, the son of Hilkiah, who Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So this is what he tells them to do. He says, build houses and live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. We see even in exile, God is telling them to do what he's always told him to do be fruitful and multiply but seek i love this verse jeremiah 29 7 but seek the welfare of the city which i have sent you into exile and pray to the lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare for thus says the lord of hosts the god of israel do not let your prophets or your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie and they are prophesying to you in my name i did not send them declares the lord so just to take a breath real quick so he is he has clearly sent the people of israel into exile he has told them how to live in exile and he's even warned them that there will be prophets arise and there will be these diviners arise and they're going to they're going to try to teach you and tell you and proclaim something that is not true that that likely he is referring to that this desolation will end shortly or or we are to live in a different way but god is saying clearly this is how you're to live and this is going to last 70 years and in verse 10, for thus says the Lord, 
when the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So there's this promise of God. When this 70 years is over, I'm going to bring you back. And then in verse 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. We're going to come back to this in just a moment, but that is a common verse in Scripture that is often, maybe if not mostly, all the time misunderstood and misapplied to the wrong people with the wrong message. In verse 12, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me, and then you and when you seek me with all of your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So we see that Daniel is fulfilling this, that he desires, as it says there in verse 3, he turned his face to the Lord, seeking him in prayer. So he is seeking God. This, these 70 years are about to be completed. And he is seeking the Lord, and he knows his time is almost up. But if I may just have a quick side, little quick rabbit trail, since we're here, and this is by no intention except the Lord's plan, but we come to Jeremiah 29, 11, and I imagine strongly that across the country today that there are many churches who are coming to Jeremiah 29-11, but it's for a different reason. That, that likely many people, they come to this passage and they want to apply this truth to either them, their people, or the nation of America. And we, we misunderstand this. This specific truth was for a specific people at a specific time. It was for God's people. He said, I have taken everything away from you for these 70 years. I've put you in a very difficult place. I've torn down Jerusalem. I've torn down the temple. All these things I've done, but I'm going to send you back. And I'm going to send you back with fat pockets, he says. I'm going to send you back, and they're going to pay for the rebuilding of all of this stuff. He says, I, he declares plans for their welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, yes, there is truth to us believers today. There is truth to the church today that God has a plan for us. It is a future full of hope. It is a future with more hope than the people of Israel rebuilding the temple. But that hope and that future is in Christ. He doesn't necessarily promise us physical blessings and prosperity. This is surely not a, a, a verse that we can hang on to America or any other country in the world. God's promise, God's hope, our hope is not in our physical prosperity, our physical blessings. It is in Christ. But his promise to the people Jeremiah was speaking to and that Daniel is living amongst was that this desolation will soon be over and God is going to return us and restore us just as he had promised. And so as he is beginning to pray, as he is about to have this lengthy prayer, his prayer is informed and enhanced by the words, by, by the word, the word of God, the written word of God. And these are the words that Daniel and Jeremiah, that he calls to mind and he calls to heart. He thinks about what God has said to the prophet Jeremiah. He knew that the Lord had decreed, decreed the exile of the Jews and their return. In the words of Sam from the Lord of the Rings, says this, that everything sad would come untrue. 
And all of these sad things, all of these dismal things that the people of Israel had experienced for 70 years were about to become untrue. And that truth is not just for those in exile, but it's a truth for us today. That Christ, the victorious King, reigns supreme in heaven and in the hearts of His people. And there will come a day in which He returns and everything that is sad will come untrue. And so having read and believed the word of the Lord through his prophet Jeremiah, Daniel then responds and he begins his prayer. And so then we see that prayer begins with adoring God for who he is. In verse 3, then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And so this is a very clear way that we can look to Daniel, and know that he is coming to the Lord, not in a pretentious way, not in some kind of uh, spiritual facade, not like a whitewashed tomb that we see the Pharisees are in the, uh, in, the, in the Gospels. But we see that he's coming with a broken heart, contrite over not just his sin, but the sin of his people. And he is coming to the Lord. He is seeking him. He's turning his face toward him. And then in verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, and we'll see in just a moment, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. So as he begins this amazing, this beautiful prayer for the people of Israel, it begins with him glorifying God. It begins with him adoring God for who he is. We cite it often, but the Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, the man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so we say often, everything is for the glory of God and the good of his people. But it's for God's glory. Everything exists for God's glory. And we exist to bring glory to God. We exist to make, to make great the name of God. Now, he doesn't need us to make his name great because his name is fully great. It's as great as it possibly can be. But he uses us and he's created us that we might, that we might look to him and glorify him and worship him few verses we don't have to turn there for the sake of time but if you go to psalm 86 12 says i give thanks to you O my lord with my whole heart and i will glorify your name forever the psalmist says that is his purpose to glorify god isaiah 43 7 says who everyone who is called by my name whom i created for my glory so why did god create his people for his glory whom i formed and made Paul says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you were bought with a price, so what? Glorify God in your body. So as we, are, as we have bodies, as we are physical people, as we inhabit this earth, we are to glorify God. 1 Peter 4.11 says, Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves for the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And finally, John 17, 4, Jesus says this, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So it is clear in Scripture that we are to glorify God. It is clear that is what we are created. That is what we are called to do, to glorify God, to make much of Him, to sing His praises, to say, as Daniel said, our great and awesome God. 
And why is He great and awesome? Because He keeps His covenant with steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. And who are those who love Him and keep His commandments? They're His people. And so we are called to live a life that glorifies God, to make much of God. And so here we see Daniel adore God by glorifying His great name. So prayer is informed and enhanced by the Word. Prayer begins with adoring God for who He is. And thirdly, prayer must include genuine confession. Prayer must include genuine confession. Now here's a lengthy stretch, but here we go, starting in verse 5. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. Notice it says we. We've done these things, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. That's what belongs to, to, uh, to Daniel, to the people of God, he says. As at this day, to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all of Israel, those who are near and those who are far away. So we want to make sure he wasn't just capturing a group of them, but all of those to the dispersed Jewish people. Open shame belongs because of the treachery that they committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for, for, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he has set before us by his servants, and the prophet by his servants the prophets all israel has transgressed your law and turned aside refusing to obey your voice and we know not just all of israel but all humanity has transgressed the law of god and rebelled against him and the curse and oath that are written in the law of moses the servant of god have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him he has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity, this desolation, this exile. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. So as we've experienced this. We know that we've sinned. We know that we've rebelled. We know this great calamity has come, come but we've done, we've done nothing. We haven't turned to you. We haven't repented. We haven't trusted you. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done and we have not obeyed his voice there's a lot of confession there a lot of confession he is confessing the sins of israel the sins of judah the sins of jerusalem the sins of daniel the sins of all of god's people he is abundantly clear that they are not innocent that they are not righteous that they are not sinless he is confessing. He is bringing this confession to the Lord. Succinctly, he says this, they've sinned and done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, turned aside from God's commandments, not listened to the prophets, and have been treacherous. This is what Daniel knows to be true. 
But Daniel also knew that confession and repentance preceded restoration. That prayer must include confession. Daniel, along with all of Israel, had broken God's holy commandments. Not just one or two, but all of them. They were exiled, hopeless, in need of saving. Can you imagine the position that they were in? Had been, been there for almost 70 years. Many thinking that all hope was lost. But the remnant, knowing and having hope and their confident expectation was in the Lord. Their greatest need was not earthly rescue, but they knew their greatest need was spiritual rescue. And this is what separated the remnant of Israel, those who continually looked to the coming of the Messiah. It's what separated them. That they look to him, they look to the coming Messiah and the ultimate hope and restoration that the Messiah would bring. So that is spirit of confession, spirit of brokenness and understanding of their sin. Look at what John says in 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the, the problem that Daniel and Israel and Judah and Jerusalem have, the problem that all of God's people have here in Daniel chapter 9 and have always had is uncleanness. They, they, they had a sin problem that following the commands of God ultimately did not lead to salvation because they couldn't do it. They needed one who could. And we too must be a people of repentance and confession. And until we are fully present with Christ, we will continue to struggle with sin. But let us not succumb to sin, but let us look to the Lord with repentant hearts through confession. The same heart of confession that Daniel displays here, let us be a people who recognize our sinfulness and our need of a Savior, even as those who are saved, as those who are redeemed. Let us come to the Lord with the spirit of confession and repentance. But here's how our prayers will radically be different. As true born-again believers, our prayers will be radically different once we realize that we have already been forgiven. And that is a truth that many people do not fully grasp and understand. That's one that none of us can fully grasp. I, I get that. But do you know that your sins are fully forgiven? Hebrews 10 tells us this. It says that we have been sanctified through the offering of Christ once and for all. Whenever Jesus died on the cross for his people, he died for all of their sins. Every single one of them. So all of our sins have already been paid for, have already been atoned. When we come to the communion table each Sunday, we remember what Christ has done, His broken body and His poured out blood for the forgiveness of sins and the new covenant that He brings. He has fully forgiven us. Through Christ, we go from rebellious to righteous. Not because we live according to the commandments, not because we're good people, not because we, we read the Bible enough, but because of Christ, we go from rebellious to righteous. Though imperfect, we still are. Imputed has His perfection made us. He has imputed His perfection to us. His righteousness to us. And so as we think about forgiveness of sins, we think about we still come to the Lord with this, this repentant and broken heart over our sin, but we do so knowing that Christ has already forgiven us. 
and has already made us righteous. So not only is prayer informed and enhanced by the word, and prayer begins with adoring God for who he is, and prayer must include genuine confession. But fourthly, prayer contains thanksgiving for what he has done. In verse 15, it's easy to miss it. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned and we have done wickedly. Prayer contains thanksgiving for what he has done. Daniel mentions here what by some accounts uh, over 88 times, some say over 150 times in the Old Testament is cited that looking to what God has done. Now he has rescued them and redeemed the people of Israel out of Egypt. And the people of Israel right now, they have been in captivity for nearly 70 years and they feel the weight of it. But in, in Egypt, they weren't kept for 70 years. They were kept for over 400 years under Egyptian captivity, under multiple pharaohs, through a number of generations, 400 years. But God saved them from that. We know that story in Exodus. We know the account of that. But every time that God's people looked to the Lord, they would almost always remember back and think back to how God had rescued them from Egypt, from their captivity. And they remembered and were reminded of God's covenant-keeping nature. And that's what we see Daniel remind his people of, remind the original reader, remind us of this morning as well, that God, of what he's done for us in his past, for the, for the people of God and for us individually, and that he's a covenant-keeping God. When God promises it, when God says it, he fulfills it. He completes it every single time. And so as we pray, let us be mindful of what God has done, both for his people collectively and for us individually. Whenever we pray and we think about that, we pray and we're adoring God for who He is and we are reminded of who we are and we're reminded of our sinful nature. We confess our sins to the Lord and we confess our need of Him. How much thankful should we be? We think about all that He has done for His people and all He's done for us in our life. How He's never left us. He's never forsaken us. He's never forgotten us. Paul says in Philippians 4, says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So prayer contains thanksgiving for what the Lord has done. And finally, we see that prayer is where in faith and in trust we bring our supplication to the Lord. So let's finish this passage from starting in verse 16. O Lord, according to all of your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of, your, of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant, and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear upon your open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. And I love this part 
at the end of verse 18, for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. And do we not sometimes fail to pray because we don't feel righteous? Do we sometimes fail to pray because we don't think we're worthy? Daniel reminds us here, we don't come to God because of our righteousness, but because of His mercy. In verse 19, he kind of sums all this up as it comes to supplication. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city, your people are called by your name. Now, Daniel is not coming to the Lord as one who has any right to, to ascend to the throne. He's not coming to him as some prophet bully. He is coming to the Lord in confidence because he is praying to the Lord the promises that God has already given him. He is coming to the Lord with confidence. He is coming to the Lord boldly because he is praying to the Lord the promises of the Lord. And prayer is where faith and trust. We bring our supplications to God. After adoration, confession, and thanksgiving, Daniel comes to the Lord in a strong spirit of supplication. He boldly asks God to work amongst His people. Go ahead real quick. I know our time is drawing nigh. Hebrews chapter 4. If I knew where Hebrews was. There it is. Deep in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 4, just a few verses. Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14. How can we have this same confidence and boldness of Daniel? Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And in verse 16, let us then with confidence, with boldness, Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And this is Daniel in his time of need, in Israel's time of need. He draws boldly to the throne. And we do the same thing because of Christ. We can come boldly to God through Jesus Ephesians 6, 18 says this, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all saints. God welcomes us. God commands us to come to Him in a spirit of supplication, a spirit of asking Him for help in our time of need. And so how can we be so confident when we are asking the Lord How can we be so confident that we're asking Him for the right things? Because I believe as believers, as gospel-centered believers, we would all say the same thing, that we desire to ask the Lord the right things. We don't want to ask amiss. We want to ask selfishly. So do you ever struggle with, how do I I know that my prayer is right? How do I know I'm praying for the right things? By praying His Word. By praying God's Word. And we see this is what informs Daniel's prayer here, is His Word. So we know we're praying for the right things whenever we pray God's Word. Because God's Word is always in agreement with His will. God's Word is always in agreement with His will. 
Therefore, we must diligently work to rightly understand His Word so that we do not pray wrongly His will. And a few more, two books go to, and we're going to wrap this up. Go with me to 2 Corinthians and Philippians. We're going to look at five promises of God. So how can we know that we're praying the right things? By His Word, and we pray the promises of God boldly, knowing that He will always he will always fulfill his promises. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in, in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which, with, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. He is the God of all comfort. He promises to comfort us. And so we can pray to God in the time of our trials that, Lord, would you comfort us because that is a promise that he gives us. And so we can confidently pray his word. Over a few chapters, chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, a passage we go to often. Therefore, if anyone is in, create, is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, and behold, the new has come. So when you're struggling with the old man, when you're struggling with your sinful desires, you can pray confidently and boldly, Lord, would you bring the new me to life? Would you allow me to walk in the newness of Christ through the Holy Spirit? And he has promised that. He has promised the old is dead and the new is alive. Philippians, three promises there I want us to catch. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1, verse 6. And I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. So God promises to finish the work that he has started in us. So if you're ever doubting the work that God is doing in you, and if he's going to finish that, you can pray confidently and boldly that he will finish it. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. It says, do not be anxious about anything. We could just stop right there, right? And so many of us just need that truth and need that promise and need that command. So what does God say when you start to uh, be anxious when you start to worry. You know what he says? He says, stop it. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving that your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So that's a promise of God that when we are anxious, when we are worrisome, when we are worried, we are struggling that the peace of God will surpass all understanding and it will fill our hearts and minds. So we can pray that confidently and boldly. And finally, at the end of chapter 4 there, Philippians 4, 19, it says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and, and glory in Christ Jesus. And so there's that promise that God will provide all that we need. We say, John, I pray that he provided my needs, and he didn't provide them. Well, guess what that tells you? You didn't need it, because God's word promises that he will provide everything that we need. And so we can boldly come to the Lord 
and pray that He would supply all of our needs and know that He will. And so as Daniel did, let us pray for the promises of God. Let us pray believing that God hears us and believing that God uses the prayers of His people to bring about His will. But let's believe what verse 18 says, that as we come before the Lord, as we pray, that we do not pray, we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of His great mercy. Daniel prayed in faith to his God. And the next week, we're going to see how his God answers this prayer. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for a chance to come before you in confidence and boldness and faith and hope, Lord. Thank you for your word. Lord, help us to be a people who come to you regularly, often, always, without ceasing in the spirit of prayer, looking to you to be a covenant-keeping God. Well, there's one here who has never confessed their sins and repented and turned to you in faith and belief and received salvation. Would they do so this morning, whether they are here in person or they're listening online? But for the many who have, Lord, may we be reminded of your, of your love and your mercy for your people. So help us respond to you in faith as we continue to sing, as we come to the communion table, as we give, as we leave this place. May we do so looking to Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.